Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best panels pertaining to RPG design and publishing. This has been made possible by Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show! Episode 48, The Writing Workshop. Recorded at Metatopia 2013. Presented by John Adamus. So, uh, I have a disclaimer. Uh, I am terribly profane and inappropriate. You'll just have to accept that fact. Um, and that's mainly because uh, that's just... I, I can't sugarcoat this stuff. I'm from... Thank you. <laughs> I'm from right in this town. So, this is how I grew up, yo. So, uh, my name is John Adamus. I am the writer next door, and this is the writing workshop. Uh, there's nothing in here, so we can go a little long, but normally we're here for about an hour. Uh, and the point of this hour, it's best handled uh, when you guys have actual questions as opposed to fill space, John. I mean, I can. I can ramble for hours. But uh, this works best when I can answer your question, something specific to you. I do have some, some new stuff to talk about kind of broadly. And I do gesture a lot, so don't freak out. And if I go too quickly, as I am oft wont to do, please tell me to repeat myself or slow down. And I will happily explain to you something else a different way. Um, so let's get into some material first, and then I will happily answer questions all day until the cows come home, because I have six hours to kill. So let's do some chatting about writing. Um, I'm going to mainly focus this on the generation of fiction in, in broad terms, as opposed to, you're only writing a game, so let's only talk about, you know, here's how you conjugate for game text. I want to look at this in terms of, all fiction is fiction, And all words are cool, so no matter whether we're writing a book or a game, we're all going to use the same rule set. Um, And that's sort of the approach I use in editing, because it's really frustrating to have somebody... Because the the new hot thing, right, is fiction anthologies. Like, everybody and their mother wants to run a Kickstarter, and like that third stretch goal, the second or third stretch goal is, unlock a fiction anthology, which means you talk to Matt Forbeck. And he writes a thing on your book, and then you talk to like Chuck, and you talk to a million other authors, and people scrape together, and then you grab new people to kind of fill in those gaps, which is great, and I love that because I love doing those things. But at the same time, uh, a lot of these people are game writers, and game writers are not fiction writers. They don't think of themselves that way. They think of themselves in some sort of weird, stigmatized. I only know how to tell you how to roll a d20. I do not tell you how to build a character, which is crap. It's absolute nonsense because it's just the shit in your head as opposed to like actual life so um, I will I will try to break down for you why there is no barrier between I know how to tell a story versus I know how to role play because it's the same thing you're just writing it down or you're speaking it aloud so fundamentally the, the, the rule by which I operate is that the entire act of writing is the act of making decisions you want to decide what's going on in your story you want to decide what goes on with your character when you're playing any indie game and you've got to decide some sort of trait about your character, it's because you decide, oh yeah, my character totally has you know, piercings and a mohawk. My character totally has the biggest gun in the universe. Or my character is a complete incompetent. You make those decisions and they stay true until you change your mind. You know, Oh, well, he's not that bad, but dot, dot, dot. So because of that decision-making ability, that is what unlocks storytelling for game designers and fiction creators. 
So when the question becomes, and invariably it always happens with fiction writers, is it okay for this to happen? Is it good for this to happen? Is is it okay? Is it is it all right? Is any sort of permission seeking question going on? Yes, the answer is always yes because I'm not in charge of your story. You are, and I whether I'm a re- even if I'm not the editor, even if I'm just the dude who pays you the however much money to read your thing, I want you to tell me your story. I I've given you money. I said I'm in an agreement with you. Yes, tell me your tale, and that means it's your tale until. I take over and go, no, you're full. It's like we're playing Munchausen and it's, oh, you're full of shit. No, it totally went this way. And because that is the exception rather than the rule, I want you, I want to see and hear your decision-making process. If you don't know how to make a decision, the strategy I tell, especially new writers or nervous writers is, what would be the most badass thing to happen? What would be the absolute worst case scenario? And then what's the happy medium? Because invariably in each one of those three conceptions... The most badass thing, oh, he totally attacks the giant kaiju. Or the worst thing that happens, her legs fall off. Or something, right? And then somewhere in the middle is, you know, they continue... What, what kind of story is this, John? It's an amputee Pacific Rim okay. <laughs> Um Something like that. Okay. So, um, yeah, and then the middle ground is they push the scene forward. There is nothing... Uh, Alright, so let's define some general terms, right? I'm going to use the words story and fiction and game interchangeably. Because the only distinguishing factor between a game and a story is the presence of mechanics. And we, I will argue in about two minutes why even that's fluffy. Because, well, I'll just do it now. Fuck it. The <laughs> mechanics of a game, the de- you know, roll this die, add this number, invoke this thing, pass that chip to the left, play passes to the left, all those things, they have narrative elements that match it. It's just because they're usually adjectival. They're usually descriptors. Um, the closest analog I have found so far is a fate accelerated because an approach clever, sneaky, forceful, strong, windy, fiery, blah 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 they're adjectives that modify an action. That's what an adjective does. It modifies nouns. Hi John. Hi um, John. Because we're modifying a thing, that is our closest expression in fiction to a stat. How well you do something and how well you describe that, what is your character sheet? That's, that's how your character is. So one of the old things I used to teach that I no longer teach because there are easier ways to do it, when you are making a character for whatever story, make a character sheet for them. Take your favorite game system, I don't care what it is, and stat your character. Every character. Even the stupid ones, even like the dude, the barista, who sits in the back and hands you the coffee in chapter four. He's at least got a skill of coffee plus two because he's, he's got a role to serve. Anybody who does something in the story that moves the story... Uh, does everybody know vertical and horizontal movement in fiction? I know you do. Alright, so, so vertical movement. Vertical or forward movement in a story is when the plot advances. Horizontal movement is when the plot really doesn't advance because it, it always kind of trickles. But hor- horizontal movement is when you describe things, when you, when you learn more about the people. I'm going to go this way because you guys aren't seeing my hands. So vertical movement is the plot advancement. We start at the beginning of the story, we get to the end of the story. You know, assume this line's as big as the story needs to be. When we go horizontal, we are learning stuff about the people doing shit. We're learning about the character. We're learning about the antagonist. We're learning about the, the love triangle. We're learning about the, the heavy, heavy subplot number seven in the back 50 pages, right? So we move horizontal because the plot doesn't really advance, but we get more info. And it sort of forms... Sometimes it forms what's called pyramidal writing, 
which is we don't know shit at the beginning, but as we as the story goes up, it incrementally increases so that by the end of the story, we've got this giant right triangle of story. Um, there is actually a post on this on my blog, uh, writernextdoor.com. Just search for pyramid writing. And I think I even attempted to crudely draw in an MS Paint. Um, if it's not there, because I didn't copy it over from Blogspot, yeah, um, because I didn't copy it from Blogspot, I will write it this week. It'll take like two minutes for me to type it back up. Um, but the idea is that as story advances chronologically through time, or however you're manipulating your story, the amount of information you are carrying from beginning to end exponentially increases. And you can get really nerdy and say, oh, the slope of that hypotenuse, because we're building a pyramid, the slope of that hypotenuse is directly related to the number of action beats in a story. I think I probably just said too much, so let's explain that again. <laughs> How much the story goes forward at what pace is directly related to the number of action scenes you have. Which makes sense, right? The more shit blows up, the cooler the thing's going to be, the more hurried we are moving from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. Because the triangle slopes that way. So when I talk about horizontal and vertical, or horizontal versus vertical movement, we're looking at progression of things. Progression is the word I use. Some people use movement, some people use flow, some people use pace. I like progression. Uh, progression is how the story develops over the course of pages. Now, if we want to compare general fiction principles to game principles again, look not at the specific words in the chapters, but look at the chapters in the book. Why is the combat chapter chapter 4? Why in the chapter 5? And not in an editorial sense. Don't come and go, well, John, you edited the book. Why is chapter 5 there? And that's because probably I didn't know where else to put it. But in the overall sense of if I look kind of top down at the book, you should be able to move through the thing and go, well, chapter 1 gives me character creation. Chapter 2 gives me some racial class details that chapter 1 alluded to, but chapter 2 clarified. Chapter 3, I'm just making up a book. Um, chapter 3 might have... Maybe a bestiary, although if you're more new school, a bestiary is in another book. But chapter three's got bad guys, how to build a bad guy, or world building. Chapter four is combat, chapter five is experience, chapter six is treasure, magical items, and everything else, right? That's the pretty standard second edition in AD&D kind of vibe. Why are those chapters in that order? Because that's the sort of experience we expect. You're going to build a character, it's going to be part of a world, it's going to fight a bad guy, we're going to get some treasure, and we're going to have some experience afterwards. That's the typical thought process behind why is shit in the order it's in. In fiction, why is shit the order it's in? Well, we have to meet the character. You can't not meet the character. You can't not meet the setting. You can't not build the world. There is no way around it. I don't care if you are a character, like those classic stories, like there's that Futurama cartoon where Bender is floating through space, and the little colony of people kind of live on Bender's body. Even if that occurred, or, or there's parts of the Futurama where they're like in white space, and it's just three characters in like a big white room, or you know whatever, that's still a story. Just because you can't, or the setting is only limited to it's a white room, that's still a setting. You can't skimp on those details. Now the the trick, one of the things I want to talk about before I get to questions, is the is how is what's called flex. Flex is. Um, a new term for an old thing, and I'm not going to give you the old thing because you really don't need to learn the five-word phrase. So flex is the idea between this is how much detail I'm giving you versus this is how much detail I am trusting you to fill in the blanks. So let's describe this room, right? So this room has fairly shitty carpet, beige walls, crappy, you know, crappy rail molding, and red chairs. 
what didn't I describe? I didn't describe the desk. I didn't describe me. I didn't describe any of you. I didn't describe this awful lighting or this fucking terrible drop ceiling. I trust you to be able to fill in those details. Why? Because likely the details I'm talking about are the details I'm going to reference. If I'm not going to reference it, why am I going to write it? And then you get into issues of what's called Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun is a terrible, terrible problem that a lot of people have. Chekhov's gun says, basically, if you, have, if you introduce an element in your story, whether it's a, the, chair is, the fact that the chair is red or the fact that there's a chair at all, to the most complicated, oh my god, they have tanks, you have to pay it off. You just can't leave that shit. If you're looking for examples of bad Chekhov gun writing, uh, The Sopranos was rife with it. In the fact that they would just introduce any show. I'm just using The Sopranos because it's one I can think of. They would introduce a thing, right? And never talk about it again. And we're not talking like in the first season in the pilot, you know, they give the lady blonde hair and then she's a brunette when they go to series. No. That's a cosmetic aesthetic thing for television. We're talking like... Uh, my example I always give is in Sopranos. There's a loose Russian killer roaming the Jersey Pine Barrens in season three. The series, the, the show goes two more years. No one talks about the serial killer in the woods. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it, it's not resolved. Chekhov's gun says if you introduce a gun in the beginning of the story, that gun better shoot the bullet that kills the bad guy at the end. And there's all different flavors of Chekhov elements because Chekhov loved to tell you Look, asshole, this is how you write a story. I don't always agree with Chekhov, because Chekhov's boring. And dude loves to talk about geometry. The room is square, the table is round, these people's faces are oblong. Because he loves to give you a picture, but let you fill in the details. It is dull learning Chekhov. The point being, what you describe, what goes on the paper, is what you want to work with, and you trust other people to fill it in. Another example, a more common example, is how would you describe a blonde person's hair? You'd say blonde, right? But I don't think any of us can agree on what blonde is or isn't. It's just blonde, right? We know it when we see it. But my shade of blonde, when I think about blonde, is not your shade of blonde when you think about blonde. It's not his shade when you think about blonde. But they're all blonde. How did we come to that collective consensus? That is flex. The ability to go, oh, yeah, I'm talking about a chair. I can just get away with calling it a chair. I don't need to know that it's an Italian racing chair with five-point straps and bucket seats with a slight indentation in the back or good lumbar support, unless I introduce those elements. Flex requires trust in your reader. If you want to build an audience, I don't care what you're writing, whether it's a game, whether it's fiction, whether it's an anthology, whether it's fancy poems, you have to trust your reader because they're not stupid. If you need evidence that they're not stupid, they bought your thing. <laughs> stupid people wouldn't buy your thing. Stupid people are the people who don't buy your thing. Also, you don't write for stupid people, do you? Nobody writes for stupid people. No one sets out to design bad games, and no one sets out to write crappy books. It just so happens that sometimes bad games get made, and crappy books are stepping stones to better books. But when we're writing it, when we're making a thing, no one thinks their thing is crap. They might say, oh, this is really hard, and I don't, I don't believe in myself. But in the end, when it's on the shelf, that's not crap. I worked hard on that. That's a good thing. So, flex is the ability to trust your reader. How do you do that? Get over your fucking self. Just, you're not that big a deal. You're not the be-all, end-all. You're the guy, you're the lady, you're the dude who created the thing. But, and yeah, you're going to be more right than they are because it's your world. Because, hey, I know my character better than you do, fan person. 
because I made them. I have more notes and more access to information than you do. But if they give you an idea, if they choose to fan fiction it, which I will always make a face at, or cosplay it, or, or take it and run a home version of your game, that's cool, man. And I didn't believe that for a long time. I, I'm still not sold on fanfiction. Someone will have to come up to me and tell me why fanfiction isn't just masturbatory begging, wishing I was good as you. But on the whole, uh, it's flattering. When someone goes, oh my god, that's my character, and she's walking across the room. That's amazing. Even if it's not perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect for you. It has to be what they want. It has to be perfect for them. I'm the person dressing up as the character. If I'm happy with it, that's, that's the shit I got. That's what it is. If I'm making a game whatever it is, and I've made a couple, and someone goes off and goes, this thing is atrocious and my group hates it. So we took out all the rules and we wrote new ones. That's awesome. What part did you keep? Oh, we kept the combat mechanics and the world building. Great. That's still mostly my game. Thumbs up. Now you're doing your own thing and now you're off. So when they take a story and they're like, we love your story, but I don't like the plot. Okay, that's cool. You like my characters? Yeah. Great. There's some point of agreement. But it happens. So you have to be able to trust the people that they do a good enough job understanding what it is you're saying so that you don't need to club them over the head with details. The more details, the more specificity, the slower that triangle progresses, the slower it takes to develop that slope, and the slower it is to go from page to page, or scene to scene, or moment to moment, or beat to beat, or whatever you want to call it, it slows down the more shit I have to juggle in my head. Oh my god. All right, so she's, she's a gun-toting spy, and she speaks six languages, and she's wearing black leather, and it's night, and it's raining, and I can just daisy-chain all these things together, as opposed to, what's she doing? Oh, she's being badass, and we just get to the point. I don't mean every story should be like 12 words long. She's a badass. She beats up the bad guy. We win. The end. Which was 12 words. But it's more a matter of... I was counting, too. <laughs> it's more a matter of... Um, Give the details you need to do uh, a slightly above average job detailing. You don't have to be perfect. You do not have to be perfect. That's what the editorial process is for. This is how I make my living. I make my living helping you be better. That's the point of an editor. When you find an editor, you, 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 you thank them because they make your life easier. They help you make sure you sound the way you think you sound in your head. Because you don't actually sound the way you think you sound. You don't. Um, just like I don't like the sound of my voice when I'm recorded, because I think I sound really nasally. Um, you do. Thanks! <laughs> oh. Go do something, maybe. <laughs> but I don't like the sound of my voice when recorded, so I generally tend to really panic. Although I will listen to myself a million times because I'm a vain prick. But... Um, in general, yeah, you, you're, you're, my job is to help you. My job is to help. You've built a thing. My job is to help put a coat of wax on it and make it shiny and make sure the car runs and make sure it has you know, all the appropriate bells and whistles so that someone else can get in it and drive it around and all you, you, know, you get your money for your sale. So that covers some of the new material. I have other stuff, but it'll come up sporadically. Does anybody have any questions about anything involving... I don't care what element of writing it is. I don't care whether it's about... One second, John. One second, whether it's about games. I'll get there. Games, <laughs> academic writing, journal writing, theory, po I don't care. If it has words, I want to question it about it. Yes, John. All right, though. What's up, dude? Oh, hi. Hi. So, um, let's say, like, you have, um, a, like, um, you 
you get an offer to write a, a section of a game. Okay. Right? So a publisher comes to you and says, hey, I'll give you money if you do 10,000 words? Yeah. Okay. So, so um, and you're going to be collaborating with other uh, writers. So on that, so on your 10,000 words or on you're just part of a group? Yeah, yeah you're part of a, a group and, and they're all going to write the book. And you so have a section. So, yeah, you have a section. You're writing one of the chapters. Sure, right on. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess, like, what would be the balance of, like, like, should you try to make yourself stand out? Like, no. Well, style? all right, so or stand like, out. If you're trying to impress the, the writers, because you want to write more parts of the book. Okay, okay, I got you, I got you, I got you. All right, so here's a couple things to keep in mind. You never have to impress the other writers. The other writers, No. They're not, they're not going to give you the job. The publisher is going to give you the job. Right. Your job is not to impress the publisher. You've already done that because you've got the job. Okay. The thing you need to do, be you. Be the person the publisher expects you to be. And if that's still what they want, they'll keep giving you work. Okay. Um, whether your chapter is chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 9, all you have to do is take the parameters they give you because they're going to give you parameters. They're going to say, you're writing the equipment chapter, so you're not going to have to talk about anything else. You're going to focus on equipment. So just write the best John equipment chapter humanly possible. Okay. And, and seriously, if you do a good enough job and you make your editor's life easy because you've written it well and you're well organized and you're open to criticism and you're communicative and all those good things we talk about when we talk about freelancers, they will throw work at you because that's a guy I want to work with because he did such a good job on the equipment chapter. And then you just repeat that process until the cows come home for anybody who will take you. Okay. Good? good? Awesome. Who had a question? Yes, Nick. This is going to be so good. What's up? Twilight. What about it? Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Name of the Wind. Yeah. Wheel of Time. Yeah. These are all books or series yeah. that are highly successful. Correct. Commercially successful. Correct. Which I would say are not necessarily the best written. Yes, that is, I would agree. What makes a story... Like successful, gain traction, all those things. What, what, what do you have to include in your story to get? Commercial. We're talking commercial success. What do you have to put? Not in necessarily your... commercial success, but just like popular to, to 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 gain traction with an audience. Okay. To connect with an audience. Okay. What are the elements that you Great. need to have in your story? All right. So there's a couple. So let's go through them. Uh, the first big thing I would ask is, what the hell genre is it? All right. If it's in the genre. Does it do an accurate job hitting the tropes and buttons and requirements of that genre? If you, for example, my experience is in most crime thrillers and detective stories of any flavor or shade. That's my wheelhouse. That's what I I mean, I, I, my first job as a, as a junior, junior editor was editing romance novels and erotica because they, at the time, got all folded together because it's all about boobs and, and genitals. So um, you... you if you're writing, for example, erotica, you're not going to talk about how the guy's in the van hacking the corporatocracy to you know, get the bank vault. You're not. You're going to make it about what you're writing about. If you're writing a high fantasy, Tolkien-esque, elves and dwarves and wizards and shit, you're probably not going to have that part about, oh, there's a race, you know, there's an F1 race in Monaco. You're going to kind of keep within the parameters. So if you're in genre, the first step in building an audience is, are you actually staying in the genre? So you've got at least the, you know at least the sandbox you're playing in, right? The next thing to look at is what are you doing within the genre that's different than the guy standing next to you or the lady sitting next to you? What what are you doing different? And that's where we get into the dangerous innovation discussion. I think you and I've had the innovation discussion, where innovation going too far to innovate it causes paralysis, 
oh my god, I, I'm telling them, I, I have to write a high fantasy story. Uh, my, my dwarves have to be so much better than, than everybody else's dwarves. I have to come up with a new dwarf. And then you spend an abstract or even obscene amount of time trying to figure out what your dwarf, like, what makes your dwarf tick? What makes your dwarfs, you know, better than everybody else's dwarves? When that wasn't the point of your story. Unless you're writing a character study about dwarves, you don't need to radically innovate dwarves. Because you will then go, well, I have dwarves, but I also have elves. Oh my god, I also need new elves. And you will attempt to innovate every element. You don't need to attempt to innovate every element. Pick one and take it in a new direction. The example, a real-world example I would give you is look at vehicles, look at cars. They all got doors, they all got tires. The distinguishing factors are the wood trim and the radio and the touchscreen and the voice activation stuff. They've got a few elements and they innovate those on a small scale and they promote those elements. And we'll talk about promotion because we'll get to promotion when I come back. But for now, understand that the innovation you create creates a USP, a unique selling point, which I talk at length at on my blog um, and in my books on Smashwords. The, the idea, though, is that the thing you do different, the thing you do that's special, that's what you start talking about. When someone's like, what do you do? That's where you drop the bombshell of my... Here it is. I make a story where my dwarves are punk rockers. I make a story where my dragons secretly all have heroin addiction or something. So you, you don't have to innovate on a grand scale to innovate on a small scale. So you do need innovation. So, you stay, so you've got your genre. If you're in any at all, 99% of the time you are, even if you don't know it. And if you don't know your genre, it's not a big fucking deal. Just tell the best story and the best plot you can. And then somebody will come along and go, oh, what kind of story are you writing? And the minute you start describing it, someone will say, oh, that sounds to me like a thriller. And there's nothing wrong with having a broad genre. I'm writing a thriller. Cool. You don't need to know that I'm writing a modernist psychological thriller with elements of feminism. No, you're writing a thriller. Just That's enough. So you've got your genre. You stay within your genre. You hit the appropriate genre conventions. Every genre has elements that you have to have foundationally in order for it to be the case. If you're writing a murder mystery, there has to be a body. Has to be a body. If you're writing a romance, there has to be more than one character. <laughs> well, you can have a single character with multiple persons. Like, there was a story going around in the mid-90s about a person with, um, well, now, well, now it's called Dissociative Identity Disorder, but right. way back it's called Multiple Personality Disorder. So this person had a romance between multiple, same, they're, they're, they had a single, it was a single character, the whole story took place in their apartment because they were kind of like a, a recluse. And the romance was between their different personalities. And it was a nightmare. And it, it, I think it's still floating around Penguin in terms of, don't do this! Because it was so long. But it's the idea of, you need to have multiple characters to have a romance. There's just no way around it. You need to have some advanced level of technology in order to qualify as science fiction. You need to have some element that is outside normal, modern-day life to qualify as fantasy. Urban fantasy has to include an urban setting. Even if you're never in the fucking city... You have to have a city in order to qualify as urban romance. Paranormal has to have elements that are outside normal existence. It's sort of in the name of these things. If you're never sure, go to Wikipedia and, Google and look up the word, and it will kind of give you a sense of the trope. And you have to have some of those. You have to be able to innovate one of those elements. Now, from there, that's all the, those are all the core things you need. Now we can get into, like, we have those. What's next? Here's what's next. 
And, and this is where I start to deviate from other people. And you can start to see, you can always read my work and go, John edited that because these are the things I can look for. I always want a writer to put a character in with its own code and philosophy. I want a character to have a set of a moral compass greater than the plot of the story. Because that way I want that character to feel real. The more, and when I say real, I'm not talking like realism in the way we talk about realism in games where we mirror you know, physics and we mirror science and we mirror skills the same way. I'm talking realistic like I could close my eyes and turn my head and I could see this dude sitting next to me and that's how I would handle a problem if he were me or she were me, right? Realism in fiction is about depth of character rather than physical description. No one gives a shit if your guy is six foot tall and muscles with a six with you know washboard abs. We want to know about how close to his thinking is my thinking. Oh my god, I completely resonate. If I were if I were the supernatural wizard detective having to face down this demon, that's totally what I would do if I had access to magic and bells and whistles. And that's totally what I would do if I was a 16th century lady trapped in a castle being wooed by the count. You know, you, you try to get your analog as close to you as possible. And that's, I think, what makes those books that I led the question with connect with readers. Correct. Well. Because there's some... They don't have to be written that They're not written well. But the issue there, when they're written poorly, you're talking about what's called visibility or invisibility. It's the and invisibility and visibility refer to how much of myself can I dump on this character. Now, the reason why poorly written things are really, really invisible is because we, the, the, the author, either ingeniously or stupidly, wants you to project a lot of shit onto the character. So let's talk Twilight and Fifty Shades because, you know, I have a death wish. The reason why those characters are so bad is because you, the reader, are suggested to dump yourself into that character. Oh, I want a man just like Edward Cullen. Oh, I want to date someone just like uh, Anastasia. You know, I want to... It's really sad that I know those names, by the way. Well, Bella's in the other one, but it's Anastasia Steele. I'm so glad you know more about that than I do. Yeah. This is the pain he goes through for us. I suffer. (laughs) Well, it's interchangeable. It's the same story, except you take out Vampire and Werewolf and you put in Whips and Chains. And not even cool Whips and Chains. But yeah, you just sort of... It's called surrogacy, the idea of, I'm that character, this is what I would do. And in small doses, that's awesome, because, yeah, if I had fireballs, I'd totally burn down that building. (laughs) It's less so when it's, there's no character depth, and it's just, he's so wonderful. The word wonderful appears in Twilight 3,000 times. Mm, Wow. (laughs) The word really appears in Fifty Shades of Grey, like 7,000 something times. Because these are words that signify, I don't know what else to say, so I'm just going to turn the volume knob up. Really is a volume, is what I call a volume word, because it's just, it's good. It's really good. I haven't told you anything new, I've just made it more. So you want to try to avoid those if you're making small notes about, hey, don't put the word really in your text, because it's lame and I'll shop it out if you hire me. Um, It also ends in LY. It also ends in LY, which I will automatically burn with fire when I see it. Because one of the first backrows I launch is dash ly, and then I just cut no matter what, even if the word is only, and then we'll work backwards. But the ability to project on a character, the ability to dump into the headspace of a character, is what stupid poor writing will save poor writing. Because all of a sudden you will feel far more invested, because oh, I see myself in them. You don't. You you sort of see wish fulfillment. 
If I had an immortal super hunky boyfriend and I was 16 in a whiny college emo town, this is what I would do. Yeah, because you're not a whiny emo kid. You're not 16 years old. You don't have the hunky boyfriend. Maybe you didn't grow up with the hunky boyfriend. But in this book, between cover to cover, I have a chance to have that experience, even as tackily and poorly written as it is. So that's why those books are attractive. As for how they build an audience, they build an audience... Well, Fifty Shades builds an audience because it titillates. Because the, the average regular reader is horrified or secretly titillated or secretly by the idea of he's hitting her with a stick or or she's handcuffed. That's kind of naughty. I like that. It pushes those those light taboo conventions. Fifty uh, Twilight rather does it because it takes expected tropes of there's a vampire and he's not sexualized or there's a werewolf and he's supportive and individualistic rather than a part of the pack. And it takes those simple fantasy tropes and it makes them very canned characters because oh why is everyone pretty why is everyone attractive why is everyone thin even the fat characters thin and the character and then we get into my great debate about first person because first person is nice and I love first person but first person done poorly is is ruinous is destructive to talent and craft because it alright so there's a term called psychic distance Psychic distance is how close we, the reader, are to the story. Picture the television camera. Picture the movie camera. When we zoom in, we have close. We are in close distance or near proximity. If you want to be a film nerd, right? And when we talk about the big wide, like, like those wide shots where the where uh, Frodo and Sam are walking across like the middle of Rohan and efforting to Mount Doom, those are wide shots. We are pulled way back. We have very increased psychic distance. Manipulating that in a, in a push-pull way. I zoom in and tell you about how you feel, but I pull back so I show you how the scope of the world is. Is a great way to encourage the reader to keep reading because you want to find out more. When you, when you fuck that up, you don't know where the story goes. It feels disjointed. It feels middling. It feels stalled. You can shortcut a lot of that effort because that's really where like, craft comes in, like practice. You can shortcut that by going into first person because immediately the thoughts of the first person character become the camera I don't like him suddenly now I know how you feel and how I should treat that character I can't believe that happened oh okay so that means the thing I'm describing is supposed to be this big shock and I should freak out and update my Facebook status that uh, first person can be a cheat There's not, that's not saying there are not good books written in the first person there are many books written very well in the first person but first person, the, the rule I learned way back in the days, first person is the refuge of the newer writer. And as you kind of get more experience and you want to push yourself and you want to get into different forms and modes of storytelling, you're moving away from first person. Because you want to start getting into the heads of other characters. Because you want to start getting into a much more encompassing ensemble of people. Like, like It's very hard to tell a play first person. Go ahead. Get me a movie script. Convert it to first person. See if that movie still makes sense. I will wait right here while you do it. The, the, the first person is abused in Twilight and Fifty Shades. Although I think the later books in Twilight are not written in first person. I know the first one is. I thought they all were. I'm not sure. I never made it through half the second book. Hunger, Hunger Games is a great example of that. Because yes. If you compare the movie to the book. Mm-hmm. The movie, I mean, say what you want about the movie, the production values. Right. 
the movie actually kind of works better. Yes. Because it's not first person. Right, because it, it, it gives you that outside distance. Right. Because we have some detachment from the character. And because we have detachment, we're able to kind of... We don't have to project and go, I'm seeing it through the blinders that is this character, which means we have to automatically buy in. Mm-hmm. We have to kind of see the whole picture and we get to make up our own minds. That's why there are very few... That's why... All right, so how do phrase this? That's why we take individual turns in role-playing games as first person. But when we talk about the game, we describe our actual playtests and our podcasts in third person. Because we want to give you the whole picture. We want to give you the whole span of what happened. Then the fighter did this, and then the rogue did this, and then the fireball came over, and then the giant robot attacked. As opposed to, when I take my turn, roll, I want to climb up the side of the, the building. It's a more individuated action. We wouldn't describe the whole story that way. Because when you stay in first person, you can't get in the headspace of the guy next to you. Because you're not. So it's just, this is what I did while he did something else. And at best, we, we show a lot of parallel action. That's action that happens simultaneously, but in different ways. So I'm sitting here talking while you guys are sitting there listening. That's parallel. In conjunction means that while I'm talking, someone else will be sitting next to me drumming on the table. Two things happening on the same side, relatively, that are going on. So you build an audience by understanding the push-pull. And you can cheat it by using first person. And how that gains traction is you demonstrate your innovation through your push-pull. So I do really cool glam punk rock albums, right? I would use, I would highlight that in my, both my spoken pitch and my written query so that people go, oh, this is a book with glam punk rock albums? I'm totally down for that. I love, you know, Poison and Motley, excuse me, Motley Crue. So you highlight those elements. And then you, when, you, when you give somebody a section to read, you make sure they read that section. And they go, this is so cool. If you like Motley Crue, you're totally going to love this. And it sort of spreads that way. The only fundamental thing that grows an audience is shared common experience. Because we will all like the same books for different reasons. The reasons why I read Series X are probably not the reasons you read Series X. And even if they are, it's not to the exact same molecular degree. I love The Dresden Files because the role-playing game paid for a substantial part of my lifestyle. But I also love the Dresden Files because the books are well written. And yeah, they're in first person, but that's an often common thing in uh, detective fiction, hardball detective fiction. It's, it's a given. And it's light. I'm not looking for like brooding Chandler. I'm not looking for like great espousements. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fucking wizard with fireballs and a stick. It doesn't have to be anything. It is, it, you know, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel. And as the power level in these books escalate, it does get a little tricky, not because he has to manage all of a sudden 15 characters at this absurd level, but because the scale is no longer appreciable. I could relate to him when it was a dude panicked in an office with a guy knocking on the door. I have a whole lot of problem with a guy who can travel through time and space. And, and that's the downside to like really expansive science fiction, because it's really hard to make, oh yeah, you have time machines. It's really hard to make that relatable. And it gets very hand-wavy in games. Like, oh yeah, you can travel back in time. Just do that. As opposed to, how does that actually function? And what does that actually mean? There are games that tackle it, but they're almost always comical to some degree. Because we can't get it as humans, so we have a really hard time approaching it. Fantasy, for whatever reason, doesn't do that. Because we often take different races as psychological aspects of ourselves. Um, The really awful, harsh thing is that Dwarves and gnomes often get portrayed with the same tropes we used to give the Jews. We used to make them really miserly. We used to have them kidnap kids. Like the Germanic tales have dwarves that kidnap kids. And that's exactly the stuff that we said about the Jews, 
right? And elves are 99% of the time always these artsy, live, kind of pale kids who should be shopping at Hot Topic. Um, and humans are always these sort of like slightly buff but dense, kind of like, oh yeah, I'm the, I'm the dude bro of fantasy, right? You're not really doing anything, but I'm just kind of like the meathead who's there. And the wizards are almost always wise, especially if they're bearded, like you couldn't just have wizards. And they're very rarely female because they still kind of exist on that trope of women are subordinate and secondary no matter, even if you've got a matriarchal society, there's always this power class structure. Because these are the appreciable elements that we can relate to to some degree. I'm not saying these are true, but we understand those tropes. We can say, yeah, we totally understand racism. So we can incorporate that to some degree. Oh, halflings totally hate ogres. Well, it's just an expression of racism. Oh, male barbarians get a plus two and women get a plus one. That's because men are better than women, bro. So these ideas sort of all find surrogates in, in fiction to some degree. Whether or not you choose to agree with them is one of the ways you can innovate to broaden an audience. So when you want an audience, find some shit that you don't like. Do it better. And your audience will go, oh my god, you're writing a story where your, you know, your gnomes aren't Jew surrogates? That's awesome. I'm so in. Because maybe they're Jewish people who are tired of being misrepresented. Maybe you're writing strong, female-centric Regency romances, which could totally be a thing that I really think should take off. Because it's a different perspective. Because as opposed to, oh, I need a man to complete me, it's, I'm going to get me a man. And it's a different vibe. So that's how you build an audience. Through the push-pull and manipulation of existing trope and innovation. Next question. I was really expecting that to be more flooring. There. I was thinking something technical and crunchy about publishing. Yes, Pete. Hey. Hi, Pete. Hi. So uh, this is probably only going to be for me. So I don't care. I'd love to give. John's question was pretty much just for John. Okay. So uh, I'm a high school English teacher, and we get stuck in our terrible high school writing, and we have these rubrics sent down from the the district of the state. So my My dad used to do that. I understand. Okay. So put yourself back. Okay. In terms of nonfiction writing, because it's, you know... Like essays and reports yes. and stuff? Okay, what I'm there. I wish you would have been taught... What year is this? Because that's important, uh, too. High school, 10th grade. Sophomores? Yes. Okay, so I'm a sophomore. Uh, how okay. can I get better writing without just come... How do you, how do you get better... Typical teacher stuff. How do you get better writing out of the students? What's what's the difference between school writing and real world oh, oh, God, Pete, I could be here for days on this topic. But all right, let's give it, a, let's give it some, broad, some broad shots. Fundamentally, school writing no longer teaches craft. Mm. Fundamentally, school writing is currently focused on production. You will give me four pages. You will give me 500 words about Beowulf, right? Yeah. You will tell me a complete... Because in 10th grade and sophomores, at least in, at least where I grew up, it was everybody had to learn the myths. You had to learn Greek myths, Roman myths, uh, Native American, European, and then we somehow got into creation myths without really touching on the... the religious aspects. Amazing. It was really dicey. And I remember my, my, my English teacher having to do a lot of tap dancing around. This is what some people believe, but we're not talking about it this way. We're looking at the construction of the stories. Um, and that was a very careful tap dance. But um, So there were expectations of, you will give me this. I need these four pages. Not, here's what goes in four pages, John. I didn't learn that until I was past college. I didn't learn like like craft. Like, here's how you apply. Like, it took me professional years to go, this is what I would do. So, in 10th grade, how you get better writing? The easy, cheap, stupid answer is to, which stays within convention and won't, it won't draw any sort of red flags from the oppressive man that is curriculum, is the, um, you make them excited about what they're writing. 
And not just in this kind of cornball, oh my god, guys, we're going to write about myths, isn't that cool? Because you're going to come across as cheesy, because nobody's. it's not the 1950s anymore. So instead what you want to do is go, find one element of the thing you're doing. Like, let's say your curriculum isn't myths. Let's say your curriculum is Re- American Revolution. Like, you're going to do, like, Johnny Tremaine mm-hmm. and the Red Badger Courage, which you should never read, but whatever. You know, you're going to read, like... Like boring, dull, seventeen seventy. So you're gonna watch the musical one day. You know you're gonna go through some period stuff. Find you, Pete. Find one element or two elements. I'd like two. Two elements that really stand out to you. That are evocative. Like not just well, we're talking about the Revolutionary War and the British were bad, so we shot them with guns and it was really tough. And the French came and saved us, but nobody talks about that. So that's the American Revolution. Ta-da! You, 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 don't, you don't give them the rote material. You find the two elements that you really like. The, the suffering at the Valley... You're suffering at Valley Forge. You're freezing at Morristown's winter. The, 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 the unavailability of supplies. The, the fear that Washington had that he was going to fail because his track record was shit in the war. But somehow we made him president. Um, you know, the oppression of the British colony. You find elements that really resonate with you. Take those elements under your curriculum. Find a modern connection. What parallel can you draw? Have them start talking about that parallel. Okay, the failure of Washington. Can we tie that to other stories we've read where failure and doubt exist? Name me a story where a character has a doubt. Okay. Now, if you're going... And then, so you you, you connect those two dots. You with me so far? Mm -hmm. And here's where we tip it on its head. Empower them to make a change. Empower them to go, okay... So you know these characters. You know this idea we're talking about. You get to rewrite history. What would you change? Please write me a few pages. Don't specify. Write me some pages. Write me some words. What would you change? How would you... If you had to tell Washington... If you had to give Washington a, a, a Vince Lombardi halftime sports movie metaphor speech, what would you do? What would it look like? What would you say? You get to rewrite history. Change any two events. What happens? You get a time machine that exists for six hours. Go. You know, you get to, you know, all that, all that speculative stuff. That's what I would tell a sophomore in high school. Because that way when they go into, like, junior year and senior year and they have to write those, like, big, daunting, although admittedly useless research papers, um, they have a sense of being able to define their own writing structure. You're not going to get a voice discussion and craft work out of a sophomore. They are not ready to talk about their voice because they're not even done finding themselves. So don't push them for voice. Unless one of them stands out. Unless you've got like like the upper .0001% of writers where it's like, you know, you're in 10th grade and you've got a complete composite sense of emotionality. I, you should be writing full time. It's amazing because the, uh, the rubric our school has, you know, there's six things. Yep. One of them is voice and the standard is freaking high. I yes. Mean, there's... Basically, no one would ever get the highest. A college student might. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah, right. It, so you basically just dumb down the, you know. Yeah, you water it down. Yep. What about, last question, what about... That's fine, Pete. Uh, I have all day. Ten minutes, um, In regard Thanks, to... Uh, put yourself back there. <laughs> yeah, 10th uh, grade? Yeah. Just the I was miserable. grammar and all that, would you still... Yes. Would you super emphasize all yes. that? Yes. Good. That's what I wanted to hear. The, the idea... <laughs> you're welcome, Pete. Confirmation. Here's why. Here's why that's critical. I don't care what you write. I don't care what flavor you like. I don't don't care what stories you write. You have to have the basics. You have to know how to build a sentence. You have to know how to identify the verb. 
You have to know how to identify the object and the subject. You have to be able to identify clauses. John, are you, are you saying that you're okay with diagramming sentences as a teaching method? Oh, God, yes. I wish we could go back to that. Yeah, no, break. yeah. because the exactly because in order for you to be able to go, this is my own thing. You have to be able to demonstrate that you know the rules so you can follow it first. Because the only way you're going to be able to innovate is to know what you're going from. So yeah, I think diagramming sentences should come back. I have a different way I diagram. I have not yet ever written my diagram sentences blog post. I probably should this week yeah, now that, that I've talked about yeah, it. Do that. Yeah. Because um, there used to be this old method where you write the sentence and you circle the thing and you draw the, yeah. the carrot oh, and yeah. then you draw the chevron mm-hmm. and you tilt and all that stuff, and that's great. But no one remembers that. So I have found that Word does this awesome thing called make the words a different color. You, you make them a different color and then you make sure everybody understands the color code. Uh, I started to do it this week on the blog when I broke down uh, rhythm and meter in poetry. Because it's all about syllables and counting and meter and pacing. And here's how you break something down so that it sounds the way you would say it. So you color code. You make everybody agree. Thanks for my lesson plan next week, John. Make sure you post that. There you go. Look at that. Uh, I'm gonna, no, I'm going to write that Monday afternoon. Because okay. um, I might do it Sunday night, but I'm expecting to be shot in the ass. Uh, last question if i got less than... Yes, Josh. Hi, Josh. Everybody, this is Josh. Hi. What's up, Josh? Um, political writing. Without, uh, dealing with politics. Are we talking about journalism or are we talking writing for a candidate? I'm talking about informing people about the process. About the political process? About the political process. Just the general, like, this is how you go vote? Yes. This is how a bill becomes a law? Yes. That kind of thing? All right, what do you want to know? Um, I'm working on a project, Schoolhouse Rocky. Yeah, kind of right there with you, brother. What's up? Um, how do you do that without offending the right or the left? Because you're not talking about the right or left, you're talking about the process. The pro- a process. Well, I'm, I'm looking at having a character actually... Do it? Do it. Okay. So the character is going to have an opinion. Yes. Because you, you can't not. Like, no. you just can't. Even the most robotic of, of Asimov automatons is going to, in some way, shape, or form, because of the way you're putting the words, have some sort of opinion placed upon it, right? So when you want to talk about... The, like, th- all right, so this is a broad question for any technical writing you do, so that you avoid, like, I, I used to write technical manuals for Ikea and Kenmore. Um, I'm not the guy who did the pictures with the Allen Ranch. I am the guy who did the translation for the words. And in the Kenmore things, I'm the guy who's like, press the button when you want to wash your dishes. <laughs> so um, when you're writing technical writing, rather than be biased and go, look, dude, you put the soap in the thing and you close the door. Rather than go, you're stupid if you don't know how to work a dishwasher, you just focus, however narrowly, on the element. Put the soap in the soap dispensing unit. Close the unit. Move on to step four, which is push the tray closed and raise the door. Um, I remember it. It's stuck in my head. So you focus on the process in technical writing. Because what you're doing is technical writing. Because if you're worried about offending somebody, it's already too late. So divorce that from your brain and just get back to... What am I writing about? I'm writing about a process. Mm-hmm. What's the process? Break the process down. Mm-hmm. However many steps it takes, however clearly it needs to be. And what I would do, particularly for a process that is often shrouded in some sort of panic or emotion, like voting. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to make it up a voting example, right? You know, in some sort of like hot button issue, whether we're talking a political party or a platform or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would think about the same process in three ways. What does somebody who hate this process think? What is my like? Like, if I'm writing for the the Democrats, what is a what is the most hard nosed, super proto fascist 
think about my process. And then I'm going to think about somebody who's undecided. I'm going to actually leave them for last. So let's do the really hard super proto-fascist, the guy who hates my guts. What is, what is he going to feel about this process? What is somebody who's far more to my side? If I'm a Democrat, what is the super commie pinko liberal think about the process? Somebody who's a fan, but like way more a fan than I am. Like the dude who signs up for the My Little Pony message board, <coughs> he uses a My Little Pony avatar, as opposed to the guy who just watches the cartoon. Like, what is the super fan thing, right? The fanboy or fangirl, right? And then, once you kind of suss out what the two extremes would think, if I didn't know any better and I came to your location and said, I've never done it before, I don't know what I believe. What do I do? Because I want to do something, but I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know these people. Like, we, in this town, we get to vote on Tuesday. And we were just talking about this at breakfast. We were, yeah. uh, I'm looking at the ballot. And there's like the obvious candidates that people I've seen the commercials for. And then there's dudes of all different flavors in parties of their own name. There's a party that says uh, his name was, uh, what was his first name? Do you remember? Oh, no. I just remember boss. the boss. Yes, his boss. name was something boss. Yeah. And his party was the NSA arranged 9-11. That's the name of the NSA arranged 9-11 party. And then you read his blurb and it sounds like a lunatic because the NSA is controlling what he writes and what he disseminates. So if you vote for him for governor somehow, that's going to totally stop. Um, or something, because he's going to tell you that the NSA did 9-11. So he gets really into it. If I didn't know any better, if I had no idea, if I barely knew what 9-11 was, and I barely knew what the NSA was, um, and I read that, I would have to look only at that text to do the thing I have to do. Assume no, for this, just for this particular box, assume no outside influence. Because the other things you're thinking about have influences. Think about a Martian who lands here and goes... I like voting. Voting's a cool thing on my planet. I don't really care one way or the other yet. I'm not yet that well informed. Focus on the process. Make the process as clear as possible. Mm-hmm. That way you're keeping the focus on the process as opposed to, well, if you're a Democrat, as opposed to, well, if you're a Democrat, you're going to push that column and you're really going to push that column. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mechanical. That's just pick the one appropriate for you, right? But if we're talking about, you know, if you love freedom, you're going to go with this party. And if you hate... You know, if you hate education, you're going to go with that party. We're not looking platform-wise. We're not looking opinion. You're going to divorce the opinion. Focus on the verb that does the thing you want it to do and the thing you're writing. So if you're going to talk voting, you're going to talk about decision-making. And you're going to talk about processing. You're going to talk about form-filling out and standing in line and blah, 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 blah. And focus on that more than anything else. And the opinion and the, and the I will piss off other people will go away. Because you're just writing down the middle. That's how you do it. I have more time, so I don't really give a shit. They'll okay. just keep recording. An for the technical writing? I love technical writing, not really, but go ahead. <laughs> Is because I have a toddler. Okay. So I'm watching a lot of uh, like Sesame Street and stuff. Okay, cool. And a lot of times Sesame Street will take this detour mm-hmm. where they go to like live action. Yes. And one of them was actually on voting. Yes. So it was like from a little kid's point of view. Here's what voting this is. This is what voting is. And it was, ta- I mean, this, the person who's voting could have believed anything. It didn't matter. But it was a good, I took it as a good example of like really clear, yes. simple, direct, step-by-step stuff for someone who doesn't have a pre, a like, pre-existing. The toddler has no idea what voting is. Right. And doesn't really care about politics. No. Like, what's the curtain? And what do we do here? And why? Why do we do it? And why is it important? How do you decide? Right. And like that, and so, and I'm seeing a lot of that lately. There's a lot of that. Yeah. But it's a really good, I'm sure it's on YouTube and stuff. Like yep. It's a really oh, good totally. example of like technical, the, technical writing. Right. 
the, the old trick we learned when I learned technical I learned technical writing as a junior in college. I had a whole year of it. I had tech one and tech two. And the, the first thing we learned was uh, no one will like your technical writing. <laughs> no matter what you write, someone will dislike it and someone will screw it up. Well, that assumes someone's going to read it. Well, I'm assuming it's an instruction. We always learned it was, assume you're writing an instruction manual. Oh, okay. So someone has bought a thing and they need to like install your shit. The other thing you do is you write it as though you're writing to a five-year-old. Not in a pejorative, I'm smarter than you five-year-old sense, and not in a baby talk, blah, 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 way, but more in a matter of, you're five. Let me walk you through this thing I'm about to do. And you keep your sentences short, and you keep your verbs really clear, and you avoid pronouns, which is critical, and you just make it about one sentence after the other, after the other, after the other, until you're done. And you don't skip any steps either. You skip no steps. You gloss over nothing. Just because we're adults and we've done it like a million times before. Like, yeah, you load the dishes. Put this open, push the button. You don't think about, you know, you pull the rack out. You, you know, you tilt the plates. You put the plates in the slot. You don't think about that. It's just put the dishes in the dishwasher. You, you explain. It's called explication. You, 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 and it looks, it, you're going to feel like, oh my God, this is, no, that's the point. Like the experts I was had to make a sandwich and read every function. Uh, exactly. Every single detail to make that sandwich. Right. Well, I mean, you're, you're going to feel pedantic and Yes, and it's going to be annoying, it's just, but it's going to be worth it. Because at the end of the thing, anybody should be able to pick that up and go, I know how to do this now. Awesome. Good example, Sesame Street. We're at time. All right, you Keep guys. Rolling, want, but I'm just you saying. can hang out. I can go upstairs and take a nap. You can do whatever you want to do. I can hang out. I have, I will sit here until some human being says, "Hey, John, stop talking." So, I will answer. I will answer all questions about agents, queries, publication, printing costs, ish. I don't know how many. I don't have my laptop, so I can't give you like numbers. I have a fun one. I like fun ones, Pete. Okay, you brought up um, the reverse of uh, what I do in class. Which Awesomely, so you confirmed another thing, which was which is what stat out your characters on a yes. sheet. Well, I do that after they read uh, a book. I would do it during. Ah, or during. Okay, sometimes it varies. Yeah. So here's the fun part, and don't weasel out of it. And say That's fine. I won't. <laughs> which have which, you ever known me to weasel? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, well, it does depend, probably. What, what do you want to do? Character sheet with you. I know which one he's going to say. What do you think would be most telling? That uh, show evidence of understanding a character when you think of all the games that you've looked at. Oh, oh, that's a good one. All right. So it is going to depend on the kind of character I'm talking about. Okay. Um, so you'd have to specify the character. Okay. But um, if we identify characters broadly, mm-hmm. character, so we'll say, let's say characters in this kind of story versus characters in that kind of story versus characters in this kind of story. Mm-hmm. So if I were telling romance stories, because Jocelyn is sitting here, I would describe all my romance characters using Cortex Plus. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, nice. As opposed to fate. And I because I would use fate for my action games. Action, um, action stories? I, like yeah, like like he, yeah. like hero does stuff. Adventure. Adventure. He, yeah. Up the ante. What's the default? If you if you're not sure. I'm gonna go with Fate Core, but that's because I edit oh, those okay. series. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and I, I could really appreciate if you guys buy more books in the deck of fate. Mm-hmm. Um do you really feel like that about Pick Core for default? So can, can, I, can I give an example? Yes, please. So I, I, finished, I just finished my first short story, right? Mm. And, and John was kind of holding my hand through this process. Yep. And at one point I was kind of stuck, and he was like, okay, so who, who else familiar with fate and who's not? I am. Okay, so he was like, okay, this, char- this character yep. isn't defined well enough. Give me the aspects for this character. 
just, just do it. Give me the. You don't have to tell me. Yeah. But I need you to know what they are. The whole secret Unstuck. to this. If you need the if you need the, the the long form of this, go to my blog writernextdoor.com. Search for fake core, and you'll get the whole all my fake core posts, which are numerous. But there is how to write a novel using fake core. Oh, sweet. So you can use the basics of fake core to figure out story and character. Creation. I did use aspects. Yeah, I, it's kind of cool. So my default would be my, my default would be fake core because I'm I'm incredibly biased. Uh, where I would I would not, despite its obviousness, I would not use Gumshoe to tell a police crime thriller procedural or detective story. I would not. I would actually craft most detective stories, crime procedurals, all that Law and Order kind of stuff. I would probably doing it use Dread. Really? Yep. Yeah, I would use because of the tension. Yeah, I would use I would, exactly. All, I would yeah. use dread or uh, even even some of Brian Engard's micro games uh, to beat a level of tension into a story. Uh, probably Technoir would be my closest analog. Ooh, just that whole set. Yeah. Um, if I was going to tell a rom com, and I've done this, I use the Apocalypse World Dungeon World model for moves because those comedic beats about oh the clumsy girl falls down the stairs that's a move. Oh my god, she blunders the text message and sends it to the wrong guy. That's a move. Um, John has now ruined every wrong com. I have. I really have. Um, I would use uh, 13th Age when I'm writing children's films. Wait, wait, no, wait. But unpack that. I would use 13th Age okay. when I'm writing a children's film. Or a TV show or a children's product. Okay, I think I got you. Okay. Think. Because it's it's pretty simplified. The idea of icons are central to a child's understanding of things. Ooh, nice. Because yeah. that's how they view that's how they view the world. You're my mom. Icon. You're my dad. Icon. You're my teacher of note. Icon. And my relationship to them is relative to my experience and my actions. And what you tell me to do based on an authority scale is what I'm gonna do. Well, my teacher says not to cross the street without holding a hand, so I'm gonna hold a hand. I'm obeying my icon. The escalation mechanic of 13th Age, I would work backwards and tick it down from I don't know what's going on to over the course of experience that die rolls backwards rather than forwards because it becomes less worrisome because I know more shit. When I start doing a thing, I don't know what to do. Oh my God, it's really overwhelming. See, writing a story, making a sandwich, crossing the street, watching television. As I do it more and more often, I'm more and more comfortable. There's less tension. There's less need to go, I have a plus four now. So I, I, I roll it back until I get to the end of the story where it's like, I know how to do this. I don't need to bonus myself. I can do it. And, and the backgrounds would be like the aspects from fate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, what else would I do? What else would I do? What else would I do? Um, I've used, to some, some success, I have told um, locked room mysteries, which is a subset of murder mysteries. I've used dogs in the vineyard. Wait, what? All right, so a locked room mystery. No, is, I got that part. Okay. Dogs in the vineyard. You yeah. got dogs in the vineyard? Yeah. Got it in your head, right? Yeah. <laughs> Build a character. Okay. Okay. Now, instead of having them quest out in the town to go right wrong, all the wrongs exist in one room. And they're all, have, they're all at cross purposes because there's only one wrong. And you're interpreting variations on that wrong. Oh, my God, that body died. Well, is he bleeding? Well, yes, he's bleeding. Well, maybe he was shot. Maybe he was stabbed. Maybe an icicle fell. Maybe he got... Pricked with a needle, maybe monkeys attacked. These are all variations on the on the on the sin that I would rectify with my dog. Oh, that's craziness. Yeah, 
Uh, the one thing I would tell you to do sparingly would be use Fiasco as a storytelling device. Mm-hmm. I love Fiasco. Fiasco is awesome. The problem is Fiasco suggests that you know how to tell a story, first of all. If you have people who are like, I don't know how to do this, don't hand them Fiasco. Fiasco is great when it's like, you know, three screenwriters and two authors sitting down going, all right, let's tell a story. We all have experience. We all speak a common parlance. I do not like or, or um, groove with the idea of, well, you guys are kids. It's Fiasco is a great storytelling game, so into the deep water with you because that's, that way lies madness. So I, I generally tend to give them a little bit more structure. And then as they show appreciable, like, yeah, I got this, you, you kind of roll them up. The thing I didn't use, I don't use any D&D for storytelling. Um, it, it just never resonated with me. There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it at all. I, I like old D&D. I never got into four. Um, five lost me early on because some of the changes were too dramatic. Um, but the early stuff, right on. And I've never, I've never really had a Pathfinder experience. But I've heard a lot about it. So I, my, all my Pathfinder stuff second hand. I, I, I cannot imagine trying to stat out it also right. It, it just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem like the thing I would use. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I would do. So that's how I would stat. It. I would stat it based on how. What kind of story am I telling? And I would generally not always do the same sort of thing. Like, oh, it's a it's a crime thriller. You gotta use gumshoe. No, you don't. You really don't. In fact, I wouldn't because it's expected. And my effort is to always do something new in a new direction. But that's just me. Other elements, other things. Thank you. You're very welcome, Pete. As the numbers dwindle down to other things. Question. Yes, Josh. Finish your water. Mm. I got a whole bottle. What's up? <laughs> true names. Okay. Like pen names? No, I mean like true name magic names. Oh, true name magic. Okay. Uh, All right. Actually, having a true name. Okay. Doing research on it, I haven't found any way of actually getting a true name. You want a mechanic or do you want a, a narrative solution? I'd like it to be both. Okay, <clears throat> I can do both. Give me a second. All right, here we go. Got it. All right, so let's suppose. Uh, what system are we writing for? Uh, it's actually the system. Okay, so let's let's kind of we're gonna I'm gonna hand wave some of the mechanics because I'm not in your head, so I don't know this better. No, no. So I will talk very broadly. Okay, so let's assume the true name has components: mm-hmm. beginning, middle, last name. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming a human. All right. You can change this as you need to, but for my example, I'm going to give a human because I am human and I can speak to this. Beginning, middle, end. Or maybe multiple syllables of a name if we've got like one big honking fancy name, right? In order for me to discover that syllable, in order for me to discover that component, I have to do something. You're not just going to tell me. I have, to, I have to earn that. It's my reward. It's my concession. It's the result of an action. I have to go to the library and roll research, right? Get through those times. Or I have to roll a d6 and get a 6. So in discovering a, a true name, what you are unearthing is an element of character. I would have you look at naming conventions. I would have you look at Russian naming conventions and Norse naming conventions. They're called patronymics and matrionics. Um... Basically, just look up Russian names, and this will all spell out. The idea is a Russian name is derived from the name of the father, and a, and a Norse name is often derived from the name of the mother. Right. More or less. I mean, there's crossover where there's exceptions, but on the whole. You know, so if you're... It's, it's, in English, it's a lot where we get the name son. Like, Cooperson is the son of Cooper. What? Son of a Cooper, yeah. 
It's not a Babe Cooper. Right, and it's, it's, relative, it's relative to your village in Hamlet. But yeah. So, um, yes? So you don't know your own name? Well, no, you know your name, but your own name actually is reflecting on your abilities. We should talk about that later. Uh, that's bigger than narrative. That's a mechanical issue. Uh, I have a mechanical solution for you, but that's not my panel. I'm, I'm interested in that. All right, we will we will chat later though about that because I do want to answer it for you. But there's no there's no strictly only narrative solution. Okay. There's a there's a combinatorial thing that we can talk about later. I will diagram it for you. Remind me. Other question, issue, concern. Nothing. We're good. We're good. I can go work on my own game now. Um, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. We did. The group will be interested. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Um, if not, I'll just keep rambling at you. There's a difference between writing your story yes. and selling and writing about your story. Correct. Marketing purposes. Yes, yes, that's correct. Can you describe that difference and yeah. how to approach okay. writing something that okay. summarizes your story in a way that you're talking about blurbs. Yeah. Okay. So here's how this works, and I'm quite good at blurbs. So you're writing your story, whatever it is, whenever it's done. Because I generally write a blurb when I'm done. Because it doesn't make any sense to write the blurb when you're halfway done. Because you need to, you need to know the whole picture. So you write the whole you write your story. Let's say it's a very simple story about Little Red Riding Hood. Right? That's going to be our story. So we have to know the beginning, middle, and end of Little Red Riding Hood, and we have to be able to summarize Little Red Riding Hood into something we understand. How does it begin? How does it end? What happens in the middle? What's the tension? You've got to be able to write autopsy and identify the parts. All right then you have to be able to prioritize those parts. Which parts do you really need to know so that my story stays my story? Can you tell Little Red Riding Hood without really talking about Grandma? Yes. You can even tell Little Red Riding Hood without really talking about the many attempts of the wolf. But you have to talk about the wolf. You have to talk about the Red Riding Hood. And you have to talk about you know, eating Grandma. right? So you identify those elements. So when we're writing... Um, I usually take an, I usually tell people to take a note card and, and whenever they hit like a, like a significant thing like if you're going to tell King Arthur you're going to talk about Excalibur or you're going to talk about Little Red Riding Hood's Little Red Riding Hood or you're going to talk about uh, Thor's hammer or you're going to talk about significant elements to your story that make your story stand out put those to one side make a list prioritize them and go okay I know Thor's hammer is way more central to the story of Thor than Thor's helmet. Which is nice, but not vertical. I can kind of put that to the side. So when you're crafting your blurb, you're talking about your story in terms of the elements it contains. Whereas when you're writing your story, you are writing about those elements. So it, it's, it's a zoom out. We are, we are looking sort of top down at the story. So when we are talking about, oh, I, I'm, writing a, I'm writing Romeo and Juliet. I can get into Montagues versus Capulets. I can get into class warfare. I can talk about a lot of those angles. But when I'm describing it to you is to make you want to buy the thing or read the thing, it's the most broad but most evocative elements. Two warring families, two young lovers, fated to live or die together. Done. Because... You don't need to know all about Tybalt. You don't need to know all about you know Mercutio. <laughs> you don't need to know all about John Leguizamo in drag, or, or the guy, from, or the, the black guy from Oz in the wheelchair in drag. You don't need to know about Leonardo DiCaprio's hair drapes. 
you need to only realize there's one, two, and the chick from Homeland, right? You only need to realize that here's the piece, here's the piece in my so-called Homeland. That's all you have. Just, you're never going to watch that show the same way again now, I swear. You, you're, you just need to identify the most... John describes the hits. Most broad but evocative parts. And then it doesn't need to be really long if your verbs are really strong. It doesn't. You don't need to fatten it up just because, oh my god, all these other blurbs, well, all those other blurbs might suck. So you hit the verbs. Your strong verbs, your evocative things, things that are going to make the audience go, hmm, or ooh. If you do that two or three times, you got them. Do you get to use the blurb as the elevator pitch when people ask what your story about? Sometimes. Okay. Uh, sometimes a blurb is a little bit more structured. Right. And it doesn't account for the fact that you go, um, or like, or, or something more relative. Or if you and I are talking about something. Right. And you and I are talking about something I can immediately relate to my blurb. Like, if you and I are talking about that dude from the ballot. Yeah. I can connect that to gumshoe games far more than I can connect it to, you know, this one time my paladin totally steamrolled this in. Right? right. So you want to try to find in your ele- in your spoken elevator pitch, you're not just reciting your blurb. Don't ever recite your blurb. Yeah, just want, like for the elevator pitch, it's super short. Like a blurb is too long. So right. really, like one of the things like I do. Tagline. Yeah. Uh, most yeah. Like the tagline and a half. Thing. So I say, you know, like I write romances that are like, what if James Bond was in Jane Austen's world? Yes. Gotcha. So it's like okay. you're taking two elements, and that's all. You that's the what if approach. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, got I come from a different approach. I come from the what's the most badass thing I can describe. Hmm. Okay. So, um, you're gonna read James Bond. It's cool gadgets, sexy ladies, and cocktails. Jason Bourne meets vampires. Jason Bourne meets vampires. Yeah. What's the badass thing about my game? Jason Bourne meets vampires. What's the badass thing about this game? Blah 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 blah. And it's just the badass part. It's just the thing that goes, "Fuck yeah, it is. That's awesome. Let's do it." That's that's my style. But you can do what if because what if suggests interest. A what if suggests I don't know. Let's read to find out. The danger, if there is a danger with a what if, is that it assumes automatic interest. Yeah, I mean, it has to be. I'm interested in either one or two of those things. Right. Therefore, I'm interested. Right. right. But if, right. if I if I don't, and also there's a, there's a danger in leading it as a question because it may sound like you don't know which one you like, which is iffy. But a lot of snotty people will will take it that way because they want to be superior to you because yeah. oh, it's so much cooler. Yeah, and you like, and you don't have to phrase it as a what if. You can right. say you know like I you know in in my world you know. In my world, there's a James Bond... It's, it's James Bond and Jane Austen. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. I got you. Right. And you strip the question out of it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I leave it as a question, sometimes I don't. But you look for the most badass part, and you find the way to get that in the front half of the sentence. Right. Because that's the part you lead with. Right. Because if you have to wait to make someone pay off the joke, they're going to either walk or be... That joke better be amazing. We've, we've, we've had that discussion. Yes, we have. We've, yeah. <laughs> so... Yes, that's the difference between the elevator pitch and the blurb. And the blurb is just a matter of evoking potency in brevity. So, yeah, if your blurb for, for company X turns out to be three sentences, if they, these are the tightest, most oh, three sentences, they're fine. Even, even if they're like, your blurb can be up to 200 words. That's great. Yeah. Ten is up to 200 words. Yeah. I mean, just picking numbers. I'm not, I'm yeah. not specifying. Yeah. But you don't have to, just because it says you have a whole six lines. Don't mean I write six lines. It seems like they're as short as possible. Well, I was gonna say, Sometimes, are we, are we playing like, like, oh, like if there's extraneous words, you're you're done. It's like, are we are we playing name name that tunes? Right, like, like I, I, can I can name your story. Words. Right. Yeah, yeah, especially if there's a familiarity. Right. I mean, like Hugh Howey has yeah. this wool series, and he released like the next book. And yes. Blurb is like four words. Exactly, right. because that's all you need. Yeah. It does its it does its job and it gets out of the way. Um, blurbs, right? 
blurbs are not bait. Do not use your blurb as bait. Use your blurb as the pickup line to get you to the bait. The blurb gets you to the sample. The Amazon rule of thumb is the blurb gets you to the sample chapter. The sample chapter gets you to the book. Do not shortcut that method. All your blurb has to do is make me go, yes, free sample, please. And the free sample should be strong. And the free sample is going to go, oh, yeah, I'm invested now. Now I want to know what happens on the next page. And that, that's the process. It's not just go to blurb, go to book, unless I know the author. Unless I'm like, yeah, I totally love that guy's last thing. Let's just jump in. I, I'm automatically invested. But if it's new and I'm kind of like, I got four bucks to burn, let's, let's try. <laughs> you know, then yeah. Even people with established audiences are still looking to attract new people. Yeah, exactly. You're always looking to attract new people. Yeah. Um, other, other questions, elements, concerns, whatever? Cool. I can go have lunch now. And then go take a nap. I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to go sit in the lobby and pass the fuck out. <laughs> Jocelyn, do you have more questions for me? I really feel like I've short shrifted you. I'm absorbing. I'm really glad you're Osmo. I, I, know, I know where you're at. So. Be right over there. You know it's exactly. not like you're hard to find. Now, apparently, that is the case. Any other questions, concerns? Am I supposed to do something with this? Uh, no, I have no idea. That lady, that lady walked away. And let I, it I, run. I'm just going to let it let run. Let it run. No. So, but she, she got up, I think, and turned it off. Oh, awesome. Oh, fuck yeah. it. So now you're all getting <laughs> bonus content. I think the hour of you is, is yeah, you, you only get the hour. All this other is bonus. Yeah. It's fine. So any other questions, comments, concerns? If you want to ask me more, um, if you want to get my opinion on things, because I no longer give my opinions on panels unless you like pester the shit out of me, come find me not at a panel, and I will totally tell you how I feel about Game X. Not so much Game X, but I'm in the industry. But if you want to talk shit about Fifty Shades and Twilight, <laughs> I'll be upstairs in the lobby in a comfy chair, and I will happily I tell you. Yeah, I love ringer just questions. To, just to end the panel. I don't know where the fuck my four ringers are supposed to be, but yes, Nick? Just to end the panel. Yes. Should you hire an editor? Always, Nick. Always oh, hire an editor. Well Editors well are the people who polish your things and make you sure that you are doing what you are doing. You also should not edit your own thing. Ever. Well, well you can... Self-editing yes. is important, though. Oh, it should yeah. never yeah. be the last. Right. <laughs> you should always Sorry. be able to press F7 and check your spelling and some of your grammar elements, although words grammar is kind of wonky, but you should at least get the basics down. And you should be able to at least be able to point out your strong points and your weak points and your, you know, make sure you're... Not worry about consistency, but just make sure you've got all your bells and ducks in, ducks in a row, not bells in a row. Ducks in a row. You can put bells in a row if you want. I guess. I don't have enough bells. But... Um, <laughs> The idea being, yes, self-edit is a wonderful mid-process step. Uh, edits are a post-step. And yes, you should pay your editor. No editor works for free. No editor, no author works for exposure. Nobody works for exposure. You mean you get exposure. That's a benefit. That's a consequence of you doing the thing. If you're working for exposure, stop. Right, if you're working for exposure, I want you to walk away from the project. I should have said that on the thing. You should have. Yeah, I get all fired up about this shit. Macklin and I just... No, don't work for exposure. Um, because it doesn't do what you think it does. Because it doesn't say, ooh, that guy's good. It says, ooh, that guy works for free. <laughs> and that's a terrible attitude to be in. Because if you're the person who works for free, yeah, you're always going to have work, but you're never going to have paychecks. There's a huge debate in, in, the, in the author community yes. about this, right? Yes, I know. I am in it. And it's... I, I come down on the side of... of Free is okay. Yeah, free is great. For promotional purposes. Right? That's it exactly. Writer, yes. Um, but you have to, but, but you have to use it sparingly. Yes. It, it is cru- the the, the way I describe it, and I talk about it on the blog, is it's croutons in the salad. 
Yeah, you can totally come check out my Caesar salad. And you can totally groove on my croutons. But my salad is not made of croutons. My salad is made of lettuce. And in order for you to get lettuce, you've got to give me cash. So Let, I will, Lettuce for lettuce? Lettuce for lettuce, lettuce, sir. Lettuce. lettuce for lettuce. So the idea is, yeah, you can go free. Go, go ahead. Put some stuff out there and get your name out there. Get, get, you know, let people know you're writing. Let people know you're making a game. Let people know you're doing a thing. But when it comes down to, okay, what do you got? Oh, no. No, 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 no. We now have to talk about costs, sir, ma'am. It's, it, I'll happily tell you about my book. I'll talk to you about my book. But if you want, like, like what happens in your book? Well, you can buy it. It's a buck. Yeah. Do it. It's very easy to find out. It's just on Amazon. It takes like two minutes. I'll, you know, here, you know, use my tablet to go on your Amazon account and buy my book. Yeah, yeah. The analogy being like, you don't go up to someone like, oh, you're a dentist. Can you just give me a? Yeah. Like just, you know, like my teeth. I'd like to see whether you're a good dentist. Yeah. Give me a freebie. Just no. Freebie. No. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if people farm authors the way they farm editors. I don't think it happens as much. But, but, okay, so farming in publication is the idea of, um, and I've had it happen to me a couple of times until so I put my foot down. Yeah, it's, I'm looking for an editor. I have two pages. Could you just take a look and just, you know, I just, I'm just trying to shop around. Could you, um, could you just take a look at this and let me know what you think and, and show me what, you know, can you just give me like a freebie edit? Basically is what they're saying. Yes. And then I will compare that to four other editors, but I won't give you pages one and two. I'll give them two and three or three and four. And then by the time I will have daisy-chained oh, like oh, 20 oh, people on the book for two pages. going to be a mess. It is, oh, but that's gosh. not important because it'll be done. Because the, the, the downside here is I've had it edited. Publish. As opposed to I've had it edited consistently, comma, and it's good. So you're saying that is Oh, I, I will get you hooked on the way I edit. I am all for letting you overdose on the magic of my blue edit meth. The issue, however, though, is don't go to different dealers. You know, for one of us is Omar, and the other one is Marlo. And you will go to one of us yeah. well, and, and stay and your way. For a, a small fee for a sample of your service, I don't think it's out of line at all. So no, not at all. Like, like a reading fee. Like, some people are like, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't pay. Like, well, maybe you should, because they're giving you time. Yeah, exactly. Now, I will tell you that I have a cutoff. If your thing goes over 500 words, I charge you. And it's, I mean, it's scalar. I mean, if it's like 501, all right, fine, let it go. But if we're talking like 750, yeah, then, dude, you're going to PayPal me like a couple bucks. Well, not a couple, but you're going to PayPal me something. But the minute we get into like multiple pages and chapters, oh, no, now we're going to talk job, job. So now we're going to talk about like the full deal. But if you're just like, you know, hey, um, I got a paragraph because I got to write like a thing for, I, I usually do this for college kids. Like, I got to write this paragraph for this stupid resume class. Um, what do I do? I get a lot of that. And I'm like, oh, here's what you do. Here's, you know, like, what do you got? And then I'll talk to them for like, you know, an hour. And I'm like, oh, you're a college kid. And they're like, whatever. Because I'll, I'll just hand wave it. But the minute it gets into, John, could you write me a thing? Once that verb phrase gets together, it's here's my rate for that service. Period. Done. Wait. So, and you you don't. I don't really wave anymore. You're looking for as an author who's seeking out as yes. Help, you're looking to establish a relationship with a person. Yes. There's nothing better than offering them offering them a little something in terms of like cash. Yeah, totally. Even if they don't end up accepting it, you know, here's here's 150 words and. I'll pay you $10. Yeah, that's fine. 
Um, one of my favorite things to do in the whole wide world is, hey, can I talk to you over lunch? That's awesome because I get lunch. Um, and I get to talk to you about a thing. So, yeah, I have no problem with somebody coming to me going, you know, hey, can I get you a drink? Yeah, fine. Hey, can I talk to you? You know, do you want to get like a sandwich or a burrito? Yeah, totally. Let's do it. And then I will talk to you in length as long as I got a burrito. But the minute the minute we make that transition into like more serious work, then it's you know what? Let's let's schedule a thing and make this an actual deal. But if we're just having this casual chat, yeah, come on, let's go have a burrito. You're paying me, but hey, you know, you, you're the one who said you wanted to talk to me. I'm here. Burrito times. Let's do. Let's do. Unless you're dating them. I, I, I dated a lawyer quite un, well, unsuccessfully, obviously. But um, it was many frequent. I need legal advice. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, I will take you to dinner in exchange. Great, John. And then it was, you know, how many hours of legal advice? Like 50 over a two hour dinner. But it was stretched out over a couple months, so it worked out. But yes, um, it's great when you're dating them. But yeah, it, uh, farming in general is is really frowned upon because when we catch you doing it, we talk. We go right to Twitter about you. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about, John? You editors don't talk amongst yourselves. No, we live in bubbles. We live in bubbles. We totally don't research the authors who come to us and ask us for help. I have never looked at someone's website and read their previous work and got an assessment of their writing style and then told them to go fuck off. Never have I done that. I've never looked at someone and gone. Oh, I know exactly how to fix you, but you will never pay me what I'm worth. So I will, I will just sit in the... No, they won't, because I, I'm apparently expensive. You are. It's worth the price, but you are expensive. Yeah, but I, I, am, the, I am the upper two... Macon and I are the upper 2% of the industry. For a good reason. Hello, Vinny. Hello. We are wrapping up in seconds. Oh, it's no big deal, as long as these guys don't have any other place else. To I don't know if they have any other place. <laughs> they seem to be captive, so I think I'm doing all right. Go, I don't know if someone, Vinny, was supposed to collect these things once it was done. No, I'm sorry. It's just hanging out? Yeah. Cool. Sweet. Great. So, um, other things? Else I'm going to go get a burrito, because now I'm fucking starving. <laughs> you can totally buy me a burrito. <laughs> I like this deal. Perfect. Let me just run to the car and get my sweatshirt because it's chill. Why are all the rooms cold today? Yesterday they were furnaces. Now I'm cold. Yes, you can totally buy me a burrito and I will talk to you about your thing. That's good, John. Awesome, John, as always. If you want my card, I have dozens. Jocelyn, come find me later. We will. We will. Yeah, I'm just going to get a burrito with Josh. Unless you want to give it to me now and I can I can peruse. I uh, I need to find an internet connection so I can email it to you because I'm not or paying the hotel. Or we can work on it online. Oh yeah. I'll find you later.